every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Dimension Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Chris Lynch, CMO of MindTickle, the market-leading sales readiness platform helping revenue leaders at world-class companies. Chris has a proven track record leading and growing both direct-to-consumer and B2B marketing organizations. On this episode, Chris shares his insights into how emotions drive purchasing decisions, why customers respond well to strong storytelling, and why it's important to understand the customer from a data standpoint. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified is the pipeline generation platform for revenue teams that use Salesforce. You can intelligently grow your pipeline by understanding the signals, buying intent, and having real-time conversations right on your website. You can learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Chris Lynch and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by a special guest. Chris, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I am doing very well. Excited to chat with you. Excited to chat about MindTickle and all the cool stuff you're doing in marketing, a recent rebrand, which we'll get into, and your background and everything in between. So starting off, what was your first job in marketing? My first job in marketing was I was a marketing manager, real jack-of-all-trades, junior role at a startup, which was called Social Text at the time. They've been subsumed into some larger portfolio since then. But there were only four people in marketing. So I was doing a little bit of everything from PR to product marketing, doing some event stuff. So some of the good news when you're younger in your career and you work at a startup that is a little more resource constrained, you kind of get a pretty big cross sampling of the function, maybe faster than you would if, you know, you joined a larger marketing organization out of the gate where you're going to get stovepiped into doing like one specific thing only. And so flash forward to today, tell us about what it means to be CMO of MindTickle. So for me, MindTickle became a logical path on my journey from there. I think that by happenstance or by accident developed a specialty in doing marketing for products or platforms or portfolios of that have a number of different applications or a number of different modules that are associated with them in the technology space because I had managed product marketing for the Oracle Marketing Cloud, which was a collection of different applications, everything from email marketing to marketing automation. I think a lot of your listeners would know things like Eloqua. That was one of our core acquisitions. And then at Cision, where I became CMO, similar deal. That was more in the PR technology space, but pretty highly acquisitive company where we brought together a number of different applications that were all related to the same function, but were doing discrete things. With MindTickle, what attracted me to the company was the breadth of the portfolio. The difference being from my previous engagements that they've gone the build 
route rather than buy. They've really developed a lot of core functionality in sales enablement and training, conversation intelligence, sales content management, and the summation of all those things we call sales readiness. So my job at MindTickle is really to manage the marketing and the BDR organization or called SDRs in some orgs. So everything from the brand awareness and story, our positioning and messaging and demand gen falls under my purview at MindTickle. And you also had a stopover as CMO of one of my family's favorite brands, which is Kuyu. Yeah, you know, Kuyu was a fantastic experience. I really wanted to, particularly when I was at Oracle, worked with a lot of consumer brands, right? We had brought over Responsus, which was an email marketing tool. And so I sort of got a sampling of the e-commerce and retail world through that purview. My brother is actually COO of a company called Marine Layer, which is a really well-known brand for what they do in a more lifestyle context. And with Kuyu, I had an opportunity to go in there and really focus on where I had some skill sets, which was really around data-driven marketing, how you pull together lots of different consumer data to, to make for a fantastic, compelling experience. So from a brand standpoint, I was probably less hands-on there because we had real authentic hunters who really knew what they were doing in the outdoor space and the kind of really extreme needs they had around product. My role was really more around sort of the campaign construct of what we did. But it was a really fantastic experience working in consumer. It's a unique opportunity for someone who had predominantly been in B2B. You sort of get your PhD in data because the volume of data that you're operating with in consumer is significantly larger. And so that was a really great experience. Also great in B2B marketing, you put out positioning, messaging campaigns, but then due to, depending on the length of your sales process and the sellers really on the transactional end of that, it was also fascinating to be part of an organization where you're putting out different campaigns and stories and then seeing how the market reacts to them in in real time. There's so few people in B2B that jump back and forth to something like that, a really well-known niche company that's been around a long time that has like a really strong brand and is trying to figure out new ways to do that. So anyways, interesting that it did affect your B2B, the way that you think about things and build kind of a different skill set in that way. Yeah. The other key learning for me relative to the B2B piece is that there are certain things around marketing that are the same across both. I think sometimes the difference between B2B and B2C is a little overblown on both sides of the fence. I mean, there's certain things that just apply to both. People respond well to strong storytelling, no matter if you're in a consumer context or you're in a B2B context. Because even in B2B, there are people making decisions. And I think one of the biggest misnomers that people who don't work in B2B have is they think, well, how is there any kind of emotion in the buying process? Because there's definitely emotion in the consumer buying process. Everyone agrees with that, right? I think there's more emotion in the B2B process sometimes than people realize. I think the B2B sales process is more data-driven than it's ever been in terms of like, you're not going to be able to three martini lunch your way into making a sale. But when you start getting into these more like six, seven figure type of engagements, people are really betting their careers around that. And you better believe that that's also an emotional decision relative to to what they make with a brand. So 
I think a big takeaway for me was there are certain things that are are very different, <laughs> but then there were other things where it's just good marketing is good marketing. And a, a lot of how you drive strategy and how you lead a team still has to be guided by some specific principles that you may have as a leader. Okay, let's get to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not? This is where we talk about trust and the place you can go and feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen and marketing secrets. So zooming out, tell me about MindTickle. What do you do? Who are your customers? Who are you selling to? So MindTickle is a sales readiness platform. And what that does is in a very simplified way, we help more sellers in every B2B sales organization hit their quota. And we do that by one, really ensuring that they have these skill sets that they require to be successful in the role. We ensure that they are prepared relative to either developing those skill sets or preparing for their interactions with prospects and customers. We also want to look at their overall interactions. How are they interacting in a meeting and what can sales management learn from that interaction? So MindTickle is really about helping sales organizations prepare, develop skill sets, and ultimately get more sellers to attain quota. What does that buying committee look like, size of organizations and all that? We primarily sell to companies with a B2B sales force that can be scale from mid-market-sized companies up into large enterprises with sales forces that are tens of thousands of people. The buying committee varies. So if you're talking enterprise, you're usually looking at chief revenue officer, potentially his or her head of rev ops, and then their head of sales enablement. Now, the head of sales enablement is a title that I feel like you see more in the technology sector, like companies that sell technology often have a department that is called sales enablement with discrete budgets, etc., that focus on this construct of writing your sellers. In other industries we serve like manufacturing, life sciences, some of these ones, I think you'll see that where that person sits can kind of vary. Like you can see them sit in a learning organization or something of that sort. But really our sweet spot has typically been a combination of sales leadership and the person who is tasked with helping onboard and ramp up their sales reps, and then also keeping them productive. Because I think that the big challenge that a lot of companies have is that almost every company will have some kind of onboarding program for their sellers, good or bad, that one exists, right? The challenge that they typically have is that these markets can move so quickly where you have two competitors that consolidate, that creates new market dynamics, company, your competitor decides to change their pricing model, new dynamics. So these things move quickly. And I think oftentimes, quite honestly, these programs can't move at the same speed. So one of the things that our technology is really focused on is helping companies really adapt to change and helping their sellers adapt to change. Because I think that's sometimes where the best laid plans of certain sales enablement programs don't work out. 
And so how do you organize your team to acquire those accounts? What are, what's your marketing strategy? So from an acquisition standpoint, if we're talking in the enterprise specifically, I'd say there's a mix of both digital and now as we're seeing some normalization in this world pandemic we've been living in with offline events, we're starting to see a flex more back into the event space. But the channels that we focus on most are SEO and organic is a critical traffic driver for us in terms of how we bring in inbound demand based on people and their research process. Related SEM remains a major channel for us. But I always say SEM and SEO go hand in hand. You can't do one well without the other. You need that sort of really strong indexing on the organic side, and then you mix that in with the paid side. And so those are critical channels for us. Content syndication has been really big for us. And I think like for a lot of B2B brands, the reason for that has been that you're often dealing with a buyer that's trying to do a fair amount of education and content syndication offers you slightly longer form content opportunities, but getting them in a way where you can place them in specific spots. And then our chatbot with Qualified has been really important for us because I think that both in our enterprise business, you have a lot of people who are doing research on behalf of the buying committee who are coming in. In the commercial mid-market business, it might be the buyer themselves that is coming to the site and wants to know more. So having our BDR organization work the chatbot has been really vital for us because as someone who's now worked in consumer, it's sort of like the equivalent of the person who shows up at the retail store and asks like, hey, can I help you? Can I tell you a little bit about our brand, our story and and, and what's going on? I want to learn about you. It allows us to have that interaction. So that's been another critical channel for us. We're going to dive into those a little bit deeper here. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Where we talk about the tactics that help you win. Open up that playbook. Tell me your three uncuttable budget items. Three uncuttable budget items. So right now, I would say the uncuttable budget items are our SEM budget. I, I know that's a very unsexy thing to say, <laughs> but... If we didn't have advertising, I think that would be quite challenging relative to the B2B buyer and education process. Yeah. I definitely think the chatbot and related just the overall web experience, right? In terms of like the touch point of having a fantastic website and then interactions between us and the prospects as they're coming through. And then the Third piece right now is an uncuttable budget item, at least as it relates to channels, would be content syndication. It's been working really well. Let's dig into it a little bit. So I'm curious, starting with SEM, how big is your team, your SEM team? So we have our demand, web, and content all sort of sit in one organization. And that's probably about 10 people right now for where we are. And... 
relative to SEM, the demand managers, we have three demand managers that are sort of cut across our market segments. All of them have SEM as like part of their remits, but they also are managing like our nurture program and other things, right? So like a lot of B2B marketers, they're cross-channel in terms of how they're thinking and managing. And then we do have an agency that helps us with executing some of the buys as well. Any insights that that you all have been able to glean from SEM? Obviously, you all are in a competitive space just because revenue folks, sales enablement, understanding how to be sold to and all of that. But at the same time, the other side of that is salespeople, they're always surfacing new tools. So curious, any tidbits there? I think there's a little bit of a less is more component to consider. And I actually think that's true for SEO as well. And what I mean by that is less is more doesn't necessarily mean budget. I mean, you probably are going to have some level of investment as a marketer that you decide you have to make for your business. I know I have to do that every single day. But what I mean by that is in our space, there's a space and then there's a lot of little micro spaces where it's easy to kind of get lost in the noise, right? So I have competitors that bid up highly on things like sales content management, right? Because that's like actually the core thing that their product does. I have other competitors who bid highly on conversation intelligence because that's, you know, the core thing that their product does. So for us, because our platform is a summation of a lot of different things in our space, a thing that's important for us is maintaining discipline on the prospect journeys where we feel we are going to be the most competitive and where we can actually drive not just a volume of inbound demand, but in this world we live in now, it's also the quality of that inbound demand. And I think for us, we've sort of gotten some religion around, hey, we would almost rather focus in on a few key avenues of SEM that we think are really critical and are high converting for us Leverage the website itself to encourage some of those people to explore more of the story rather than kind of pushing the story out in so many different permutations of it to so many different areas where you could spread yourself just thin enough to like be interesting to nobody (laughs) at the same time. So I'd say that's been a real key learning on the SEO side. One part about SEM that I think is important is intent matters, right? B2B marketers are very big into intent data. It's a data point. It's just that. It's a data point. It shouldn't dictate your entire strategy for how you're driving uh, demand from your ad channels. I see some B2B marketers really putting a lot of their eggs in that basket. And I think you got to be careful there. Why do you say that? Is it something that you just get people with false positives or is that it's not you're not casting wide enough net? I think when all of the account based marketing, the ABM platforms were coming out, there was a lot of excitement and rightly so, because I think particularly for people who worked in demand gen, I came up through the product marketing side of the house, but I know all my colleagues I worked alongside with demand gen, they would get sick of playing the MQL game, right? It's sort of we're, we're generating MQLs. Sales doesn't convert enough of them. And then even when they do convert, they complain about the relative quality and quantity. It's like the the classical B2B sales and marketing arguments. And I felt like ABM offered this sort of 
I think a lot of the demand marketers ran towards it because it offered this flip the script type of perspective on reporting and metrics where it's like, oh, well, no, 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 it's, it's about accounts. It's not about leads. It's about accounts. And yes, it is true that if you're in B2B, you sell to a company. Company is still staffed by people. So there is still some onus on you as a marketing organization to make sure that you are getting in front of the right people. I feel like where we're moving and there's going to be acceptance of this is like a blended model of leads and accounts is vital. And I think if you tip too far in the lead direction, you're probably just harnessing a lot of crap into the system. But if you lean so hard into the MQA area as well, I think you're losing opportunity for business somewhere by just maybe a lack of hustle in certain channels or in your outbounding. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think with intent, I think you have a lot of opportunity that things are really hot and you get a better look at certain types of people. And then there's other types of people that it's going to miss. And I think that one of the clear ways is the conversations that are happening in Slack channels and group texts and like, you should check it out. Those are the sort of things where you kind of have this B2B, you've done all the research, 80% of the journey, and now you're ready to buy and tons of people buy that way. And I think that there's this other part, which is like the completely cold, hasn't done any research and is hearing word of mouth or different sort of ways that they're going to then kind of go into that conversation and that person or that account is going to have really low intent because they haven't necessarily decided to make an investment there. That's an opportunity where it's like, well, you don't know that their board just had a big conversation about how they need to invest in AI or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, it probably depends on the maturity of the industry you work in. So right? I was going to say, yeah, if you're if you're doing category creation, if you're doing that sort of stuff, yeah. like how would there be yeah. a ton of intent signals there unless you're doing something really cool and creative with the way that you're looking at what people are doing? For sure. I want to talk content syndication because it kind of struck me through this conversation that if you believe that, you know, that it's moving towards this blended approach, why potentially content syndication might be an important avenue for this? What types of things are you doing? How's it working? So content syndication is allowing us to just grow mindshare and awareness around different topics that we care about, particularly on the top of funnel, because like every company on our SEO and organic, there's there's a certain set of things we want to grow mindshare around. You're you're doing all the things around how much can we write for people versus how much we're writing for the machines and keyword density and, and all of this stuff to try to get that traffic coming to us organically. What I think content syndication is offering is it's like, it's almost this hybrid. I almost view it as this, like this hybrid approach between the full stop nature of a promotional ad. You kind of have owned and earned media, right? Which is more overt. That is you speaking as a brand, but where content syndication is interesting is as it kind of proliferates and gets around to some of these areas, I think you're you're widening your opportunity factor to get the right topics in front of certain audiences. And we've really seen just a pretty massive spike in overall lead flow that's come from that channel. And I think what I like about it is even though it's top of funnel, you can assume some intent just by virtue of the stuff that they're clicking through (laughs) and coming and, and deciding to engage with. So I think that's how we've been looking at it. it has has largely been a top of funnel thing but i like that it's content driven which inherently means 
there's some level of education that the prospector user is already interested in. Yeah, it's super fascinating because we actually, funny enough, we actually hear content syndication quite a bit coming up in things that people aren't investing in because the juice ends up not being worth the squeeze. And then what they end up doing is choosing usually a lot of times to create their own series or channel or something like that to fill that void. And I think that exactly what you're talking about, building awareness around content as a key pillar of the strategy that is going to help people learn or grow or do those sort of things is really valuable. And you have to kind of find the way that works for you the best. But at the end of the day, if your brand is not near smart stuff being said about either your industry or that person's career or profession or somewhere they're looking for information, you're probably not showing up. You're not painting the skies your brand colors, as our buddy Chandar says. I think that it's another one, right, where it probably depends on where your company and brand is at and what makes sense for you in that given moment. I feel that content syndication has probably made a lot of sense for us because candidly, MindTickle has had to go through a bit of a journey to just increase our overall brand awareness during the last year. I mean, that was a big pillar focus for me is like, we had gotten the from our customers, you guys have such a fantastic product, great customer service. But when I go and talk to my colleague who's in the same chair at another company, they haven't necessarily heard of you. Yeah. Right. And I think, frankly, that was a catalyzation for me joining the company because I think our founders, they really took that kind of feedback to heart and they're like, yep, we got to start investing. So that I think made content syndication made a lot of sense for us because it was sort of a fast path to getting that type of awareness and and here's what this company is doing and how they might be able to help. I love that. If you're trying to to drive that brand awareness, especially when you're in the middle of a rebrand. So how did you go in thinking about the rebrand? So I actually start always by figuring out what's our story and how do we want to then portray it So for me, it really came down to simplifying how we talked about this concept of sales readiness in our space, which is really about how sales readiness is about enhancing rep performance, unifying seller data, and helping sales organizations adapt to change. And for me, first coming up with a narrative of how I personally would go and pitch a chief revenue officer in, say, five minutes or less about what we do. I first had to challenge myself to do that before you can start getting into brand aesthetics or websites or anything else. You have to get very clear on what your story and positioning is. And for better or worse, I have a very active product marketer part of my brain. So I definitely come at it a little bit from that standpoint of drawing the line of narrative and then narrative that can be backed into something that you actually solve in the market. I think, unfortunately, a lot of brand-led exercises for brand-led sake in B2B generally fall short because you, you just end up being in these sort of platitude land of grow revenue or reduce churn or like whatever kind of thing where it's like you see so many B2B sites like this where take the language and not only could you swap out your entire competitive set, like you could probably swap out like 30 different market categories in B2B tech that basically proclaim to do the same thing. 
So I think if you start your brand exercise too far away from like the core essence of what problem do you actually solve? Why is it valuable to a person? Then it's really hard to work on all the other things. So first, I'd say first thing first was getting that story right. We're a founder-led brand, so also getting them comfortable with that story. Does it still jive with your initial vision? Do Are we capturing enough of where we came from, but also being uh, thoughtful about all the things that we want to add? So getting clear on that was number one. Number two for us, I felt, was Mind Tickle was from a brand perspective, high on the fun factor, because going way back, like almost 10 years ago, one of the founding insights of the, of the company was when it comes to things like sales enablement, you're inherently trying to get a cohort of people to do something that they don't really feel like doing. So how do you make that interesting? Right? So they're, they were really leveraging gamification and some of these engagement mechanics that were kind of moving from the consumer space into enterprise at the time. Now, since then, They've really honed focus quite a bit, and it's a, it is a very serious piece of software in terms of what it does. But the fun had sort of been a big part of the brand. And I said, look, like already with the name Mind Tickle, that invites a conversation to begin with. So now that we're selling to really large enterprises, we really have to focus on having a clean and elegant look to our brand. So right now, like, for instance, if you go on our website, you'll see that our entire logo is all lowercase. That was something that came out of our brand team. I thought it was a fantastic idea. It really just created more of a minimalist feel and sort of a little bit more of an elegance to our presentation in a way that looked really cool. But again, before you can even get to those decisions, you have to be clear on your story. And our story was, hey, a huge part of the world of sales performance for so long has been anecdotal and not terribly scientific in terms of how we quantify what is a good seller outside of like them closing business or not. So having that kind of idea, we call it the science of sales in mind, that sort of impacted a lot of our different decisions. And I think the other thing we went through was thinking about, hey, you know, if our brand is a person, what well, who would that person be? And I think for us, despite the fact that we work in sales tech, like we weren't necessarily started by salespeople. We were started by very smart people who understood the value of data, the value of being able to give sales management all these different inputs in terms of how they want to modify seller behavior. That's a really cool story. It's a sophisticated story. It's different than other people in the space where I think you see more of like a type A personality kind of permeate the branding So for me, I said, look, it's okay that we're coming at it from this different angle, but let's have the brand be befitting of that angle. Before we can get to the website, I feel like getting some of those core elements were what we had to do. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you can't paint the car until you put the uh, right engine and the right wheels on it and all that stuff. It just just doesn't make sense. So I, I think that makes a perfect sense. And then it brings you to the website, which is the digital storefront as we all know now, if you don't have all that other stuff and all the architecture in place as well, then you have a new brand, a new website, all this stuff, and then drive all this value. And then they go to where and it's not captured. Yeah, I think with the website, this is another one where I feel like 
B2B marketing tends to overcomplicate so many things when it comes to website development. I think a website should say, what do you do? Why is it valuable? And what are the potential outcomes that someone could expect from using your stuff? And so many different sites get so lost in the noise of their own brand exercises that the taglines, the headlines, all of this stuff are statements that unfortunately lack the context of that brand exercise and thus don't make a ton of sense to anyone reading them. And so I think one of the things that I was pretty keen on with this version of our website, and I say a version because you're never really done with a .com. It's always evolving or changing. But what we decide to err on the side of with this one was, hey, this is a complicated market where there's a lot of different players offering different things. A stated goal we should have is someone who visits our site, if they're willing to spend anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes on the site, they should minimally be able to close out and walk away with a very clear sense of what we do. And I wasn't really convinced that we were there. I think we we had some good things on our legacy website, but we were at an interesting inflection point a year ago, right? We're a late stage startup. We we took our latest round of funding from SoftBank back in, I guess it was August. And what ends up happening is, is your website grows in the linear fashion that the business grows. So as you add new products, as you add new services, you add it to the website. And it's like anything else where once you add things in that linear fashion, it's hard to keep control of the user experience because, again, it, things just get added without any kind of thought necessarily to what was already existing. Do things get pulled out? Like I'm sure so many brands you talk to, like when we did a website, I mean, we had a massive graveyard of pages that we just had to retire, <laughs> get rid of, which actually feels really great. <laughs> feels like you're cleaning your house up as you're doing it. But for us, that was the goal of the site. How could it be a reflection? We felt like the best possible reflection of what we do and why it's valuable to our customers. Any final uh, lesson or takeaway has been been rolling for a little bit, looking back, something that you would have done or something you're glad you did? I think the big thing is with branding, there are times to get consensus and be a little more democratic about things. And then there's times to be a little bit more unilateral and undemocratic about it. And I think that you can start looking at things like the logo and the colors and, and all this stuff where if everything by committee, you are just never going to make everyone happy. And you got to be careful because if you keep making tweaks based on the entertaining of all of those conversations, it'll sort of be like one of those bills in Congress that no one's really happy with <laughs> because there were so many different negotiations that happened that the the thing that came out was so watered down to the point where none of the points of view are really shining in any particular sort of way. So I do think that there's a time and a place to get consensus. And then there's other times where you just got to move and frankly, ask for forgiveness later. What's your most cuttable item or something that you might not invest in? I think for me, I'm always looking at these various industry associations really closely. Those are a popular ask of your marketing budget. We got to work with this group or association because they purportedly have this type of audience that is like absolutely the audience that we want. Those lists are a little hypothetical because it also just matters who shows up to the engagement that you paid for or sponsored. 
So we're not cutting those, but what I will say is I've really instructed my team to be looking at them with a very critical eye because I think that oftentimes they just don't drive the sort of outcomes that you want. So then they get into that, well, is it good for the brand scenario, which is a whole other kind of quotient where a lot of things try to hide out there. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's not super high converting, but it's good for the brand. We work with some associations that are great. So anyone listening to this, I don't want them overly reading into those comments, but there's certainly just a number of things where the perceived reach I don't think really it squares with reality. And so that's something that we look pretty heavily at. All right, let's get to our next segment, the desktop. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. Where we talk about healthy tension, that's with your board, a competitor, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up? Yeah, I mean, I I think that the biggest thing that I've run into perennially, like just regularly in my career, is we all do it. If you, especially your listeners who work in demand gen, right? There's a basic decisioning that you make in your marketing plan around quality and quantity of the demand you're going to drive. And I don't care what anyone says about all of the different targeting at our disposal. There are still decisions you make, even within those targeting tools, around how wide or how narrow to make the aperture of the market you're going after and the demand you're going to generate. And so for me, where the dust-ups often happen is sort of figuring out, okay, like in B2B, marketing's job is to drive demand with these accounts and these leads Ideally, you're doing it with an ICP fit in mind. Ideally, your BDR team is doing what they can to kind of pre-qualify this, if you will, and like kind of understand, is this someone we we really want to be engaged with? And then it's going off to sales. And then it's their job to really kind of diagnose and understand whether or not that is right. And, and again, like the, these are issues that just have happened since forever. So... I think a lot of it is always just sort of determining how quality was some of the demand you generated. In marketing, I always tell my team, if you're not ready to show up to a meeting where you can go deep in the data, look at all the demand you generated from an account and lead standpoint and feel confident that was the right type of demand that you wanted to generate, then let's not go and beat anyone up in sales because we we clearly haven't brought to the table what we need to bring. Okay, let's get to our final segment, quick hits. This is quick questions and quick answers. Just like how quickly you can talk to somebody on qualified.com. Go to qualified right now. We love qualified. They're the best. They've been with us since the very beginning of the show, and we love them dearly. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Quick and easy, just like these questions. Chris, are you ready? I'm ready. Hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? I'm ambidextrous. Favorite book, podcast, or TV show you've been checking out recently? The Rewatchables on oh, Spotify. Yeah. Great one. Favorite non-marketing hobby that might make you a better marketer? Golf. If you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing? Writing. Advice for a first-time CMO trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? Follow the data. 
I love it. Chris, thanks so much for joining the show today. We really appreciate it. For all of the marketers out there, go knock on sales door and tell them to go to mindtickle.com. Hit up your head of sales engagement and tell them to check it out. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug, Chris? Thanks for having me today. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining. Absolutely. The ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.